Good. Well, uh, do please keep that passage open and also have the, the white bulletin open with the outline in front of you. Uh, before we begin, I just want to uh, say a word of thanks to our brother Grace. Uh, a couple of weeks ago we had a ceremony of thanksgiving for the students who have graduated this year and are going back home, but Grace wasn't part of that because his plans for next year were not clear. Um, but they are now clear, and he's going back home to Uganda, I think, to administer the Explore course. Is that right? Is that what you're going to be doing? But not coming back to us. So today is a sad farewell to a dear brother who has been part of the family for the last four years. And we do thank God very much for you and pray that the Lord will bless you richly. Do please take a moment after the service to speak to Grace and to encourage him and wish him well on his journey um, next year. So let's pray and let's ask God to help us understand this letter. Our gracious and loving Heavenly Father, you have taught us that we are not to live by bread alone, but by every word that comes from your mouth. We pray that you would come to us this morning as a father with little children, that you would break down for us the bread of life. We pray that you would not only open our mouths that we may feed, but also our hearts, that we may inwardly digest the food of the gospel. And we pray that as we look again into your word, that we may find our Lord Jesus Christ as the bread of life, who has come down from heaven, that in him we might enjoy eternal and everlasting life. So speak to us then, we pray. In Jesus' name. Amen. Well, Nike, uh, of course, is a global brand, isn't it? Um, it's famous for its sports shoes and its um, athletics clothing. Its products are instantly identified by the famous swoosh logo. And, of course, the company motto, which has been out there for many years now... Just do it. Not so well known is the fact that Nike was the Greek goddess of victory. Uh, in her Roman form, she had the name Victoria. Uh, her job was to reward the conquerors on the battlefields of the ancient world and to convey to them the thankfulness of the gods that she represented. And I start with that this morning because Nike is the word used in verse 17 of our passage today. To the church at Pergamum, Jesus says, to him who overcomes, and the word in the original is in root form, the word Nike, to him who overcomes, to the conqueror, to the victorious one, I will give some of the hidden manna. And I will also give him a white stone with a new name. Now, in our series, uh, we've seen that the book of Revelation uh, is in our Bibles in order to strengthen and to encourage the church in every age. Um, its purpose 
is that in a world that is characterised by hostility against God and the Gospel, that we Christians should nevertheless be conquerors uh, through him who loved us. Why? Well, in order that we remain faithful in our worship and witness. I think that's where we've pretty much got to in our series so far. Now, of course, the idea of the Christian being a conqueror is not unique to the book of Revelation. Uh, In the letter to the Romans, the Apostle Paul says we are more than conquerors. Uh, The word in the original could be translated super conquerors through him who loved us. And that theme runs all the way through these letters to the church, uh, the different churches in Asia Minor. In every single letter, there is something about being someone who overcomes, someone who conquers, and there's a great deal that encourages us to think about what that means for us. Because, you see, the Christian life is a journey, isn't it? Uh, It has a definite beginning when we first accept Jesus Christ as our Saviour and Lord and begin to follow him in our daily lives. And beginning the Christian journey is a very wonderful thing. If you haven't yet started, I'm asking you, in fact I'm pleading with you, to begin this morning. If you put it off, it's quite likely you won't do it. But exciting and wonderful as it is to begin, and to begin well, with a clear grasp of all the Christian doctrines, it is equally important that we finish well. And that is the challenge to everyone in church this morning. Because whether you've been a Christian for 30 years or 30 minutes, it is absolutely essential that you finish well. Now that was the challenge that the church at Pergamum needed to hear from the risen Christ as he spoke to them through his servant John. That's what we're thinking about this morning. Now it wasn't easy to be a Christian uh, at the church in Pergamum. We're told, aren't we, in verse 13, if you can see it in your Bible, we're told in verse 13 that Satan has his throne there. That's the only uh, church in these seven of which that is said. Now, why was that? Well, Pergamum was the capital of the Roman province of Asia. Uh, We know that it was a fashionable, wealthy city. Uh, It was located on a rocky hill about a thousand feet above the river plain below. And its name, Pergamum, means a citadel. Um, And it seemed, I think, to be an impregnable city fortress. And we also know that Pergamum had many temples, many altars, uh, including an immense altar on top of the hill to the, the god Zeus. It's an enormous altar. It's about 40 feet high and 100 feet long. And uh, they had another temple to the god of medicine and healing and the symbol that used for the God of medicine and healing was a serpent. A serpent. But most ominously, I think, for the Christians, it contained the very first temple to a living Roman emperor. Um, It was built in 29 BC. And so Pergamum was, if you like, in the lead 
in worshipping the Roman emperor. It was the centre of the imperial cult in that part of the world. And uh, as we've noticed before, that meant every citizen was expected to offer incense to the emperor and to declare in public, Caesar is Lord. So there was a price to pay for being a Christian in Pergamum. Uh, If anything, it was even more dangerous than being in Smyrna or Ephesus. And that is why the true Lord, the Lord of the church and the Lord of the universe, says to his people in verse 13, I know where you live, where Satan has his throne. Now I think this speaks to you and me this morning because in South Africa it is no longer politically correct to say that Jesus Christ alone is Lord. Uh, As far as most people are concerned, if they think about heaven at all, they assure us, don't they, that all roads will take us safely there. Uh, And anybody who says anything different is either dismissed as a religious nutcase uh, or accused of religious hate speech. Now that is precisely what Satan wants, isn't it? And it shouldn't surprise us because elsewhere Jesus describes Satan as the prince of this world. Meaning that until the Lord Jesus returns, Satan has his throne in every heart in every home and in every community that does not acknowledge Jesus Christ as Lord. So we need to pray, don't we, that the Lord will defend us with his heavenly grace so that you and I will finish our earthly journey well and not fall by the wayside. Now, in light of that, won't you please notice with me two important lessons from this letter which impact our lives this morning and indeed this week. And the first is this. Be on guard for the pressures of the present. Be on guard for the pressures of the present. Now, if you've got your Bible open, and I hope that you have, you'll see that in verse 13 and following, There are two particular pressures that the Lord Jesus wants the Christians in Pergamum to be aware of. Uh, Verse 13 speaks, doesn't it, of a direct all-out attack on their faith. But then verses 14 and 15 speak about something altogether more subtle and arguably far more difficult to deal with. So, quickly, the first of these pressures is the challenge to remain faithful to Christ alone. And that, of course, is always a challenge. But there is only one living God, and our worship of him has to be exclusive because he alone is Lord. And uh, for these Christians, there was a great challenge to that kind of faithfulness. Although Satan has his throne in Pergamum, uh, it's good news that these Christians seem to have persevered even in the face of the most extreme persecution. Look again at verse 13. Jesus says, I know where you live, where Satan has his throne. 
Yet, you remain true to my name. You did not renounce your faith in me, even in the days of Antipas, my faithful witness, who was put to death in your city, where Satan lives. So you see, these Christians haven't denied their faith in Jesus as the only Lord and God, even though for martyred, uh, for Antipas it meant being martyred. And that you'll notice there that he's described as a faithful witness, which is precisely the way that Jesus is described in chapter 1 and verse 5, isn't it? Jesus Christ, in chapter 1 verse 5, who is the faithful witness, the firstborn from the dead, the ruler of the kings of the earth. So, following in the faithful footsteps of the witness who is his master, Antipas has refused to declare that Caesar is Lord and he's paid the ultimate price, the first of many, to die for their faith in Pergamum. And the church has obviously been powerfully challenged by that event. And Jesus praises them for this because he says in chapter 2, verse 13, you remain true to my name. Now in the Bible, the, the name of God speaks about the nature of God. Now think about this with me. The name of God. He, he is the Lord. That's why we call him by that name. And that he is the Lord means that he is sovereign over the entire universe that he has made. He's Jesus, which literally means rescuer or saviour. And he's Christ, which means God's anointed king. And Antipas was prepared to die rather than deny those realities. But it wasn't just an intellectual position regarding the truth about Christ. No, no, it was also a personal relationship. Because as the verse goes on, you'll see that Jesus talks about remaining true to my name and not renouncing your faith in me. Now that, of course, is the only thing that keeps us confessing Christ. You see, it's not just an intellectual acceptance regarding the truth about Christianity. No, it is a personal relationship with Jesus Christ as our Saviour and our Lord. And when we know Jesus like that, well, it enables Christians to be more ready to renounce their life than renounce their faith if called upon to do so. And all over the world this morning, there are Christians facing precisely that challenge and following in the same footsteps. So the verse indicates that Antipas wasn't alone. Uh, the whole church was prepared to take that stand. And the Lord Jesus knows just how tough it continues to be for them. He knows where they live. He knows the particular attacks that they suffer. But he also knows and treasures their faithfulness under pressure. Be on guard 
against the pressures of the present. And uh, if we're Christian people, then we need to be on guard to preserve our confession that Jesus Christ is Lord and not dilute it in order to keep a low profile, in order not to be cast out by our friends or judged by them. But there is a second and I think more dangerous challenge that emerges in verses 14 and 15. And this is the challenge of compromise. So in verse 14, Jesus says, Nevertheless, I have a few things against you. Now notice, will you, that uh, Jesus makes a distinction between the church and certain people within the church. Because Jesus continues, you have people there who hold to the teaching of Balaam. So, can you see that Jesus' concern about this church is not that they've all been led astray by false teaching, but they are welcoming in an inclusive, unthinking, unchallenging way those who are following false teachers and the rest of the church is doing nothing about it. In other words, they're compromising. It seems, doesn't it, as if there was a sort of false tolerance at Pergamum that probably went something like this. I think if you asked them, they would have said, well, uh, we're all agreed that Jesus is Lord and we want to worship him, but uh, some of our members have come from other churches where the teaching is just a little bit different. But having thought about it, we've, you know, we've decided to tolerate them. I mean, after all, it's their problem, it's not ours. And the Lord Jesus says, no, you are all responsible because the spirit of compromise is highly infectious. But what was it all about? I mean, why were the Christians at Pergamum told not to tolerate that sort of thing in church? Of course, they were to love these people and encourage them out of the false teaching but they were not to allow things to be taught in church that were contrary to the word of God. Well, the story of Balaam and Balak in verse 14 is recorded for us in the Old Testament book of Numbers. You don't need to turn to it now. If you haven't read those chapters recently, a good Sunday afternoon read is Numbers 22 to 25. But let me try and summarise the thing in in a couple of sentences. Balak was the king of Moab at the time when the Israelites had come out of Egypt and before they settled in the promised land. He was very anxious about the sheer number and power of the people of Israel. So what he did was he spent a great deal of money to hire the prophet Balaam in order to curse them. And on three different occasions, the cursing was all set to go. But on each occasion, when Balaam opened his mouth, instead of cursing, he prophesied God's blessing on Israel. He couldn't do anything else. But here's the thing. What he failed to achieve by cursing, Balaam achieved by subtle influence. 
Because as we read on in the book of Numbers, we find that he persuaded the Moabite women that they should invite men from the Israelite community to join them in sacrificing to their pagan gods. And the Moabite liturgy involved blatant sexual immorality and uh, the Israelite men were seduced into that. And the result, of course, was that God's judgment was poured out on Israel in a devastating plague. Now, you see, that was Balaam's way of undermining God's grace to Israel. It was by putting them in a position where the just and holy God had to act in judgment against them. But the point that I want us to take away is that it was a subtle deception. You know, Balaam deceived Israel into believing that because they were God's covenant people, that their behaviour didn't really matter. Um, He probably packaged his message rather in the language of an evangelistic campaign. We don't know, but he might have said something like, well, you know, look, it's terribly important Uh, for the people of God to build bridges into the surrounding culture and well if that involves a little bit of idolatry and immorality well God's just going to look the other way it may have been something like that and in our passage you see in this letter Jesus says that's what was happening in the church at Pergamum through a group called the Nicolaitans that we were thinking about a couple of weeks ago in verses 14 and 15. And Jesus says, you have people there who hold to the teaching of Balaam. And as far as we can tell, it was something very similar to that episode in the book of Numbers. It was saying that all the temples in Pergamum were nothing to worry about because, after all, pagan gods aren't real, are they? So it didn't really matter um, what you did or how you behaved. If you knew in your heart Jesus Christ is Lord, well, you could compromise in these other areas. Because in the culture, uh, business deals in those days were sealed over a temple meal, a meal in the temple. Family celebrations would take place in a sort of semi-religious context. And if that involved a bit of ritual prostitution in one of the temples, well, that was perfectly normal. I mean, everybody was doing it. What could possibly be the harm? And the answer is, it mattered to Christ. I have a few things against you. So you see, in that church... Listen to this. There was tolerance, but no discipline. And uh, if Satan couldn't destroy it by head-on attack, well, he was undermining the church by compromise with the gods and the lifestyle of the contemporary culture. Now, that immediately brings it up to date, doesn't it? I hope it does. Can you see the connection? You see, we're so much more influenced, aren't we, by the culture than most of us care to admit. I was fascinated this week to read about a leading Anglican bishop 
in another country who has started showing films with sexually explicit content in the cathedral in order to get more people into church. I've given you an extract from the Church Times on the back of the yellow question sheet. You can read about it afterwards, not now. And when he was challenged about it, the bishop said, quote, we're not showing anything that God hasn't seen before. Pathetic. But you see, in our own lives, we know how easily we can compromise with the culture in different ways. I mean, we worship at its shrines in our shopping malls, in our sports stadiums, in the things that we watch on television, in our darling addictions. And then, like that bishop I've just mentioned, we invent silly excuses for behaviour which actually denies the fact that we're called to be God's holy people. Can you see that this letter to an ancient church 2,000 years ago is speaking to you and me this morning? As 21st century Christians, we need to be alert to these kinds of challenges. We need to be on our guard. You see, what may be a much greater danger for you and me than the danger of outright denial, because everyone in South Africa is a Christian, aren't they? Hmm? What may be a greater danger for you and I than straight outright, outright denial is that we compromise both in what we believe, really, and in the way that we live. Well, the question then, obviously, is how on earth can we stay on track? How can we avoid those two dangers? Well, if we are to be on guard against the pressures of the present, our second point tells us how which is that we are to be governed by the values of the future. Governed by the values of the future. You see, verse 16 couldn't be clearer, could it? Repent, therefore, says the Lord of the Church, otherwise I will soon, Advent, come to you and will fight against them with the sword of my mouth. The church, then, has to repent. Not the pagans out there. I mean, they need to repent too. But that's not what this letter's about. The church has to repent. Which means that those in error have got to be shown their error and urged to make personal repentance. And you see, for you and I, it means in this past week, wherever we might have been worshipping at other shrines, embracing other values and other gods apart from the Lord Jesus. Wherever we have not allowed him to be Lord of our lives and our families, if we're head of the family, wherever we've taken control 
of our own lives into our own hands and live the way we want to rather than the way God commands us to. The Lord of the church says, repent. Turn back. Turn around. Change your mind. Change your thinking. Because if that doesn't happen, the church leadership has to intervene. Because actually these letters are primarily addressed to the leadership in each church. And so the church leadership must repent of their compromise, their failure to address the issue, and start to exercise discipline against the false teaching that is gradually gaining ground in the congregation. Now can I say that the important thing about repentance in the Bible is that it is always active. It starts in the mind because the mind needs to be convinced of the need for change. But it works out in our lives And the urgency of getting on with it is conveyed here by what Jesus says he will do in the future in verses 16 and 17. So first, there is a warning about what he'll do in the future, verse 16. Repent, therefore, otherwise I will soon come. I will fight against them. And then there's a promise in verse 17. I will give some of the hidden manna. I will also give a white stone with a new name. So do you see that there are two very, very different future outcomes? Can you see that, church? In verse 16, I'll come and fight. In verse 17, I will give. And what Christ will do with you and with me in the future depends on what we do today in the present as we listen to what the Spirit says to the churches. Have we got that clear? You see, if the compromise with sin and idolatry continues, then the sovereign king will come in judgment and he will fight against his rebellious people, just as he did in the book of Numbers. Now, friends, that is the reality. That is the reality. Because God is king in the universe. He lovingly and graciously invites us to humble ourselves before him, uh, to repent and experience his forgiveness. But if we refuse... In the end, we will come under his judgment. But you know, the striking thing, I think, for me in this letter is that the the agent of both the judgment and the repentance is the same. It's the word of Christ. Because the sword of his mouth, that sharp, double-edged sword means that the words of Jesus, the teaching of Jesus, is the means by which we are both wounded and healed. It's the way that we're made aware of our sinful need, 
And it's also the way that we're brought to trust, really trust, in Christ. See, that's why we have Bibles on the tables in church on Sunday morning. Because it's the way that God speaks to us. Not through kind of vague ideas that come wafting into my head after breakfast on Sunday morning. There's a place in the Gospel of John where the Lord Jesus says, now listen to this. He says, there is a judge for the one who rejects me and does not accept my words. That very word which I spoke will condemn him at the last day. And I think that quotation reminds us, doesn't it, that the sword is is a picture of a swift and sure judgment. And, And can I say that you and I show love to no one by fudging this issue. Namely, that all of us are going to stand before Almighty God on the last day, that his word will be the standard of judgment, and the Son will be the agent of judgment. Don't fudge that this Christmas. So, You see, the challenge is knowing what Christ is going to do in the future, have we remained true to his name in the present? That is the challenge of this letter. Are we keeping our faith in him? Are we worshipping him as the one true living God? Have we stopped compromising with other gods of our own imagination? Does our lifestyle reflect the things we believe? Friends, you see, all of those things are what finishing well is all about. If you want to wear spiritual Nike shoes, think about this. So lastly, look with me at the fabulous promise in verse 17. He who has an ear, let him hear what the Spirit says to the churches. To him who overcomes the Nike, I will give some of the hidden manna. I will also give him a white stone with a new name written on it, known only to him who receives it. So it's all about overcoming. It's all about persevering against open opposition and also against subtle compromise. And what keeps Christians persevering is the word of the one who has the sharp, double-edged sword in his mouth. In other words, the word of God written, which is the expression of the word of God in flesh, who we think about at Christmas. So friends, what is the wise response to all of this? Well, surely the only wise response is to examine our lives and make sure that the values of the future shape our reaction and response to the pressures of the present. And this wonderful uh, promise is full of encouragement for us to do that. To him who overcomes, 
I will give some of the hidden manna. Now, of course, that takes us back to which book of the Bible? Quickly. Exodus, thank you. And remember, to the daily sustenance that that God provided for his people in the wilderness. And you see here, uh, this, this bread from heaven is contrasted with the food sacrificed to idols. Do you see the contrast? Verse 14, that's what they were doing. So there's a contrast, isn't there, between two types of food. They're not to feed on that food, because it can't ever satisfy the soul. But the hidden manna is intimate fellowship with Christ, because he is the true bread from heaven. And it's hidden, listen to this, because it can only be seen, recognised and enjoyed by those who've put their trust in him. If you haven't got a clue what I'm talking about, it means it's probably a sign you haven't yet put your trust in him. And if we overcome the pressures, we will enjoy intimate fellowship with Jesus now and he will give us everything we could possibly need to sustain us and enable us to enjoy eternal life with him forever. See? And he says, I will also give him a white stone with a new name written on it. If the manna is a sign of life, food that gives life in a place of death, The white stone is a sign of belonging. Now, there have been huge numbers of theological textbooks written about the white stone, and we're not going to go into all of the different possible permutations. I'm just going to share with you the one I think is right, which is this, that um, in a court in those days, very often the way that the verdict was given was that that the consul or whoever it was tossed a black stone into the court if you were guilty, and he tossed a white stone into the court if you were not guilty. And I think that's what is going on here. The white stone with the new name written on it signifies our new status as the not guilty people. Because if we put our faith in Christ, the verdict of the last day has already been brought home to our hearts in the present not guilty, which means we belong to him forever. It's our new status. It signifies, if you like, the intimacy between God's forgiven people and the Lord of the church, between faithful followers and our faithful Lord. So the question that you and I have to ask ourselves this morning is where do you and I stand in relation to this great and mighty ruler and judge? He says, I know where you live. Um, He knows our circumstances. He knows the culture in Cape Town and the pressures against the Christian faith that come against us in all kinds of ways, sometimes very close to home, sometimes in the family. He knows when we remain 
true to his name and when we have not renounced our faith in him. He knows that. But he also knows when we've failed. And of course, we've done both. All of us, every single one of us, has done both. And yet the point of the letter, you see, is not to grind you and I into the dust in despair. That's not the point of the letter at all. The point of the letter is to encourage you and I to repent, to confess how much we need him, to turn away from our compromise and our denials and to affirm Jesus Christ alone is Lord. And there isn't another one. Now I find that a real challenge to me and uh, I hope it is to you this morning because, you see, you and I need God's grace to shape us, to sharpen us up and to get us to think about these big eternal issues. Christians go off the page at Christmas. I hope you know that. They wander away. They start thinking about all sorts of other silly things. Don't let's do that. Let's stay focused on these big, important, eternal issues. Is our faith really in Jesus Christ? Do we really trust him for forgiveness? Or are we still thinking that somehow we can score enough brownie points to get into heaven in our own strength? Well, uh, as soon as you read a letter like this, you realise just how impossible that is, don't you? And if our faith is in Jesus, what about our lifestyle? Does that reflect the reality of Jesus? Do we confess his lordship day by day by the values we live by, but by our refusal to compromise that he is sovereign lord in every area of our lives? Are we persevering Christians? And here's a big test. Are we loving one another? You see, we may have started well, But how are we doing as we run towards the finishing line? Some of us are a bit nearer that line than others. How are you doing? And it's important to pray that we won't fall short and that we will see God's grace in our lives because, you see, God's grace is given to those who overcome. And the reason we pray is because it does not lie in you or me by myself to be an overcomer, to wear those Nike spiritual shoes. No, no. The resources to be an overcomer are only available to us in the Lord Jesus as we lean on him and depend on him and pray to him. Shall we do that now? Let's pray. Well, our loving Heavenly Father, as we read your word to this church of long ago, we see ourselves as in a mirror. For like them, we're often easily led astray from a pure, undivided devotion to Christ. We are so easily drawn away to worship the gods of the culture. Father, forgive us. Give us grace to turn back again to the cross of the Lord Jesus, to repent 
as we trust again in the one who bore our sins in his body on the tree. Please keep our perspective of the future crystal clear in our minds so that we might live by its values and keep us on guard in the present against everything that would distract us from being truly Christian so that we might be those who overcome and who at last will enter your eternal glory. And all God's people said, Amen Amen indeed.